Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. As always, lots to talk about this afternoon. Um, A number of items strike me as being of particular interest given what's going on this week. Uh, Firstly, we had the publication of the summer economic statement by the Department of Finance earlier in the week, which basically lays out the fiscal parameters for the budget, which has been brought forward two weeks to September 27th. Um, There's a few things I'd like to say about that and also Uh, Simultaneously, we had the release of the Exchequer returns for the first six months of the year, which show remarkable tax revenue buoyancy. Um, I think the second issue just revolves around the whole global inflation and interest rate backdrop, Um, as we have seen for a number of weeks and months now, uh, from week to week, it just continues to evolve in a very worrying manner. And um, I think it would be remiss of us not to talk about what's happening in the United Kingdom with Boris Johnson. Um, As somebody who has never been a fan of Boris Johnson, I'm sure you must be particularly happy with what has transpired over the last few days. Um, And I think actually we we will start there. It just strikes me that with Boris Johnson gone off the scene, well, almost gone, uh, there's obviously a lot of uncertainty about who will replace him and when he will be replaced. But it certainly strikes me that when the new leader of the Tory party and the new prime minister takes, assumes the seat, uh, possibly as late as October, that they will be taking over an economy and a society and a political system that's experiencing serious challenges. 
Uh, if you look at the UK economic performance at the moment, and it looks set to get worse, but we have inflation in excess of 9%, which is the highest inflation rate in the G7. Uh, we have a recent forecast from the OECD suggesting that US UK growth will be flat in 2023, which would be the worst economic performance of the G7 countries. Uh, the public finances, we were warned by the Office for Budget Responsibility earlier this week, are on an unsustainable long-term path at the moment. The Bank of England is increasing interest rates. It has already increased rates five times, taken from 0.1% up to 1.25%. And the possibility is that rates could go as high as 3% before the Bank of England pauses for breath. Um, we have just a general malaise in the economy flowing from the disaster that is Brexit. And it certainly strikes me that given the inability of Boris Johnson to tell the truth on many issues. I think it's now time to stand back and seriously question everything he said about Brexit in terms of what it would deliver, because um, I certainly from the outside would come to the conclusion that Brexit is proving to be an unmitigated disaster for the United Kingdom. Uh, the largest current account deficit on record, largely as a result of a pretty poor export performance. Um, the all of the great trade deals that were going to be done around the world with other countries have certainly failed to materialise. And of course, Brexit has totally and utterly split the UK um, economic, political and social system. So in a nutshell, um, whoever assumes the prime ministerial office from Boris Johnson and the leader of the Tory party, will, I think, be picking up a seriously poisoned chalice. What do you think? Yes, to all of the above, Jim. The situation didn't make me happy, actually. It made me quite sad that the country that I live in has been reduced to this kind of Trumpian politics. And I say Trumpian because there were shades of events in the United States over the last few days. There were, there were rumours flying around Westminster earlier on in the week that Johnson wasn't going to resign and that he was just going to stay there, a bit like Trump tried to do. I'm not suggesting for a second that Boris was th thinking of organising a coup in the way that Trump certainly did. But certainly there were, were shades of refusing to accept the inevitable, an electoral defeat in the case of Trump and a majority of Conservative MPs wanting Johnson out in the case of the British Prime Minister. As you say, the politics has reached, well, it reached circus levels a long, long time ago. And I do think that this is going to have one or two twists in the tail yet. I spoke to a friend of mine on the phone last night who'd just come back from the pub and he'd been having a few drinks with um, diehard Daily Mail readers. People, um, there are plenty of them who read the Daily Mail and pretty much believe everything that it says. I think inspired in part by that newspaper, but also more generally the zeitgeist surrounding all of this, they described what had happened to Johnson as a Remainer plot. That speaks to how divisive Brexit has been for the country and how divided the country remains, um, to coin a phrase. I apologise for that inadvertent pun. What Johnson does from now is going to be very interesting. There's a debate about how long he's actually going to be the caretaker prime minister. Um, 
that there is a debate over, of course, who is going to succeed him. And one of the things that is scary is that some of the people coming up behind him as potential candidates being listed by the bookies, people who have declared themselves to be candidates, some of them are quite scary. Um, there's a woman called Suella Braverman, who is the Attorney General, um, who attracts all sorts of criticisms and indeed mockery uh, amongst both social media commentators and serious commentators in, in the mainstream media. Um, she is, um, let me just say, a lightweight in, in the extreme. So who comes after Johnson is going to be very important. And um, I, I don't have high hopes that we're going to get somebody that is going to transform the fortunes of the country politically, because it, it, it is now so divided. I think that uh, it would be an extraordinary leader who could heal those divisions. My judgment is that they're more likely to get worse rather than better. Uh, the economy that you mentioned is, is, is part of all of this, of course. And as you rightly say, quoting a lot of data there, the UK economy is not doing well. Boris Johnson has done a lot of damage to the UK economy. And I think it's important to reflect on that and what Johnson has done, and in particular what he hasn't done. Uh, he delivered Brexit. I think the thing for our listeners to hang on to most of all is that he delivered Brexit and then did nothing else. So somebody like me, a diehard Remainer, said that there wasn't much good that you could do about Brexit, but you could have mitigated the damage. You could have not engaged in a war of words and indeed worse with Europe, disparaged Europe, confronted Europe in the most aggressive way over the Northern Ireland Protocol. All of those wounds are very, very raw and it remains to be seen again what a new leader could do to heal that. Over in Ireland, of course, you, you have the concerns over the Northern Ireland Protocol and I just don't know what's going to happen to that. That will depend a lot on, for example, whether it's Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, or, um, or the ex Chancellor, as he is now, I suspect they would have a very different approach to the Northern Ireland Protocol. The right wing of the Tory party is dominant in the parliamentary party. The reason why Johnson, I think, did nothing with Brexit is twofold. One, he's not interested in the hard graft, the hard details, the choices, the tough policy choices you have to make, the grasp of detail that you must have if you are to be a serious policymaker. And Brexit required serious decision making and policy actions, and he's just not interested in that. The second more fundamental point about Johnson, which I think explains a lot of his behaviour, is that I don't think he had any particular Brexit beliefs, one way or the other. I think instinctively he probably thought Brexit was a terrible idea, but it wouldn't have been more than instinct. He wouldn't have sat down and thought very deeply about it. Famously, he wrote two articles for his Daily Telegraph column at the time. He was a journalist at the time. One saying leave, one saying remain. In a way, I think he just tossed a mental coin. Or perhaps more specifically, he chose the leave letter to be published because that was the one that gave him the most personal political advantage with respect to his career. After that, all the rest followed. A man that delivered the most diamond-hard Brexit that you could possibly imagine. And I still think there's a few people out there who don't really understand this, that what was actually delivered was the hardest Brexit that was, that was imaginable, short of just going full WTO, as it was called at the time. Um, it didn't need to be that way, but that's what he did. They're living with the economic consequences of that now. They're living with the political consequences, social and cultural as well. I think once you dig these divisive trenches, they're very, very hard to fill in. They're easy to dig, actually, 
But the, the hard graft of healing the wounds created by all of this, I think it's beyond any of the, the current list of candidates that are being put forward for the leadership. I'm not doing cartwheels. I'm not giving anybody any high fives over this. I think the country needed Johnson to be gone, but that's only the first small baby step on a long road to economic, political, social, cultural healing. And I, I'm worried that we're not going to be making many more steps along that road. The economic situation in the UK is dire from a whole host of perspectives. You mentioned inflation, you mentioned growth. It is going to be the second worst economic performer in the OECD, not just the G7. Only Russia on OECD forecast is likely to perform worse over the next year or two than the United Kingdom. So it's a pretty bleak outlook. The people that compile this sort of data are looking to October now, which the peculiar way in which we calculate household electricity and gas heating bills means that they only the next rise will come then. The estimate at the moment with natural gas prices where they are right now is that the average combined electricity and natural gas bill for the average UK household next year will be over £3,000. You know, that's um, about €3,500, Jim, which is a serious amount of money for an awful lot of people. It's really going to hurt, and it's going to have all sorts of economic consequences, but also political consequences. So the outlook, from, from just that perspective alone, let alone the growth, trade, and inflation perspective, is, is poor. I could go on about Johnson and Brexit, about his personal philosophy, about the way in which he's a man that clearly believed in absolutely nothing other than himself, is interested, frankly, in nothing other than himself. And yes, I'm glad he's hopefully shuffling off the political stage. I worry that there's, it, it's going to twist and turn in ways that we don't expect over the next few weeks. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a good thing, but it's a baby step. Funny, in relation to the whole Brexit thing, um, the world-beating trade deals that he promised and that um, Jacob Rees-Mogg is still talking about nothing is materialising. Uh, in a couple of weeks back, the Resolution Foundation estimated that real pay in the UK per average worker set was set to be £470 a year lower per worker as a result of Brexit. And uh, it's clear, very clear, I think, that Brexit has seriously damaged the UK labour market competitiveness, productivity. And I was reading a piece during the week about the uh, vegetable and fruit picking in the UK, that there's millions of pounds worth of produce rotting in the ground because they quite simply don't have enough uh, non-EU workers in the country to actually harvest the crop. I, I could go on and on, but it just strikes me as, well, we always believed it, Chris, and we always said this, that from an economic point of view, Brexit made no sense whatsoever. What I'd like to throw at you, and you have much more of an intimate knowledge of the UK political system than I have, um, I think I would categorise you, Chris, as being perhaps slightly left of centre. Would that be a correct That's probably a, categorization. Uh, I, I hope I defy character ca categorization, okay, okay. Jim, but uh, okay. I, I understand why <laughs> you would say that, and um, I won't disagree with it. Okay, I just throw out, mm. I, I was checking... Um, the bookmakers before we came on the podcast just to see what odds are being offered on the different candidates. And I'll just run through pretty quickly here. And, I, and I'd like your assessment of from your political, ideological, economic perspective, whatever you want to call it, who would be your favourite candidate? Liz Truss is seven to one. 
Nadim Zahawi, whom nobody really heard of until he was appointed Chancellor this week, uh, was 8-1. to one. Uh, Rishi Shunak is favourite at 4-1. to one. Sajid David is 7-1. to one. Penny Moradant is 5-1. to one. Tom Tungan... Tungan... Tugenhart. Tugenhart, excuse me, is 14-1. to one. Jeremy Hunt is 11-1. to one. Ben Wallace, 5-1. to one. Suella Braverman, who you mentioned a second ago, the AG, uh, you'll be glad to hear, is 40 to 1. And Michael Gove is 16 to 1. Um, so Rishi Shunak is the bookie's favourite at the moment. But um, given the turmoil that's going to um, envelop the Tory party over the coming weeks and months, I guess any outcome is possible. But who would you like to see as the next leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister, more importantly. There was a tweet, I forget who put it out this morning, that went something like as follows. Uh, Somewhere in Tibet, there is a Buddhist monastery where Rory Stewart is sitting in the lotus position, gently chanting to himself, meditating with his eyes closed. A group of men approach him from behind. He can't see them. He can't hear them. They're approaching quietly. And they happen to be the members of the 1922 committee, the body responsible for election of the leader. Rory Stewart, with his eyes still closed, simply says, welcome, I've been expecting you. Rory Stewart is the the, the best Tory out there. I I use that phrase advisedly because, as you know, I am not a Tory. I'm not a fan. But I, I, I do think that he is the best UK politician on that side of the fence that sadly is not in the House of Commons. He's not in Parliament. He would be my choice of leader of the Conservative Party and therefore at the moment Prime Minister. He has been very vocal in recent weeks and months since he was basically kicked out, purged in a sort of neo-Stalinist way along with many other centrist or centre-left Tory MPs, leaving the rump of the Conservative Party to be this bunch of right-wing swivel-eyed loons that most of them actually are. You're probably going to push me and say who on that list would be my choice. Uh, I think Tom Tugendhat, um, the name you struggled with there, Jim, is uh, possibly a, one of those Rory Stewart-type centrist guys that, who uh, might stand a chance of healing. Uh, I have my doubts about Sunak, the favourite, um, he's an orthodox finance guy. Uh, I don't think he's got anything particularly imaginative to, imaginative to say about the economy. As Chancellor, he, anything that he has done hasn't worked with respect to helping the economy. So um, uh, the thing I'd say about the bookies' favourite is that the, the history of Conservative Party elections is that the front runner in the early days very rarely turns out to be the winner, historically at least. I remember when Margaret Thatcher um, came to power, it was as a result of Ted Heath being ousted by the Parliamentary Party and a chap called Michael Heseltine was thought to be a shoo-in for the job. Didn't turn out that way. Um, nobody thought that uh, Theresa May would become the leader, but, but she did, and so on. There were many examples in history where the, the eventual, eventual winner of these things turns out to be um, uh, somebody from the back of the pack rather than the, the early the early runner. Um, so uh, none of them look particularly palatable to me. Uh, this task of uniting the country, of getting the economy back into some kind of shape 
and repairing relations with continental Europe and with Ireland, because that's so important um, overall, and in particular for our listeners. As um, Leo Varadkar said recently, relationships between Britain and Ireland have never been as bad in living memory and possibly for longer. So there's so much work to be done, both on the political, economic and cultural stages, that uh, I think this task is beyond any of those those people. Um, I, I'm quite... Um, I'm about to say prejudiced, perhaps even bigoted about the quality of these people, partly because they're Tories and I don't like Tories as a, as, as a, a generalisation. Um, but I think modern politics has become a bit like uh, modern corporations in that you and I, Jim, have observed many, many CEOs in our time. And of course, there are honourable exceptions to what I'm about to say. I hope I was one because I was a CEO once, very briefly. Um, but I think um, anybody that's a chief of something, chief executive officer, and indeed anybody in the so-called C-suite, is very like modern politicians, people who, first of all, aspire to these roles, and in particular, then do the things that is necessary to acquire that power. Uh, they tend to be very peculiar individuals. Um, a doctor friend of mine uh, took me up on this the other day, corrected me when I said that they tend to be psychotic and he said, that's, that, that's a very specific medical term that's probably not appropriate in this case, but you get, the, you get where I'm going with all of this. Not all of these people are like that, but an awful lot of them are. You have to be very peculiar, very self-focused, um, have an awful lot of self-belief, um, and be able to do an awful lot of very difficult things well. And I think people that have a, a very strange, shall we say, mental constitution, um, which is necessary to reach these exalted levels of power, um, you know, I, I just don't think they have it in them to do what is necessary for the country. Um, the, the, one of, the, again, somebody with who has a very interesting personality, shall we say, is Dominic Cummings' own... Uh, um, Dominic Cummings was Boris Johnson's special advisor, ousted, of course, in very spectacular circumstances a while back. And uh, to give you an idea of just how much the circus keeps on running in the UK, he has tweeted only today that two of the candidates that have declared for the race to succeed Johnson, Cummings said that um, it's well known within Westminster circles that two of them are shagging their spads. Apologies for if, if any of our reader, uh, listeners are a bit sensitive to such things, but there we are. Um, that's the, the level to which the debate has sunk. Uh, a serious or semi-serious person like Dominic Cummings um, feels necessary to commentate on, on the race to succeed um, the leader by pointing to the sexual peccadilloes of, of, of two of that, that pack that you mentioned there. I don't know who they are. I don't know whether they're men or they're women, but uh, um, so it goes. This is the state that we're in, Jim. Wow, Ex extraordinary. Uh, apparently, there has always been an old joke at G7 and EU meetings when the UK was a member of the EU, um, that uh, when the Italians turned up, there was always a joke about which prime minister would turn up, what he'd be like or she'd be like. Uh, there was so much turnover of um, prime ministers and um, they're now going to be same, saying the same thing at G7 level about who's going to turn up from Britain. Um, which prime minister will it be? Because there's been some turnover over the last number of years. But uh, Chris, I think... 
this is something we will obviously be discussing a lot over the coming weeks and months. And uh, let's hope for uh, the best possible outcome in difficult circumstances. I want to move on to what's happening here in Ireland. Um, for our listeners, the Minister for Finance um, and the government generally uh, came out early in the week um, confirming that the budget would now be held on September 27th. And on that date, as is always the case, the various tax and expenditure measures um, will be announced. But what we got in the summer economic statement was basically the Department of Finance laying out the fiscal parameters that will dictate what the budget is going to look like. Um, it is going to be a cost of living budget. There is no doubt about that because um, Irish inflation certainly seems set to go above 10% in my view over the next few months. Um, so cost of living will still be a big, big issue come September 27th. But the, go the government announced an expenditure package of 5.65 billion over 2022 and 2023. Uh, 400 million of that will relate to 2022. The rest will relate to 2023. And uh, the reason why some of that figure is included in 22 is because unlike previous budgets, when they make announcements on budget day, many of the social welfare and taxation measures don't actually come in until the 1st of January the following year. But I reckon that the announcements, the cost of living announcements that will be made on September 27th will apply from that night. So we're talking about a spending package of 5.65 billion. Uh, the government is also... Um, going to introduce a package of tax relief measures of just over a billion and the focus of that billion will be on trying to protect incomes from the ravages of inflation so in other words they will try to widen the various tax bans allowances credits to try and um, accommodate for the rise of inflation um, there's also, um, and I wrote a piece earlier in the week, it attracted a little bit of comment about this, but the government is also providing on top of the 5.65 billion, a four and a half billion in what it describes as non-core expenditure. Core expenditure is basically expenditure on providing the goods and services that the government provides in the normal course of events. But there's four and a half billion in non-core expenditure for temporary measures. And this expenditure will provide humanitarian supports for refugees arriving from Ukraine and more limited COVID-19 provision in respect of potential continued requirements. So um, there's a, a massive spending package included in this, okay? And I was talking to you a few minutes ago about your own sort of political ideology or economic ideology. Um, I am sick to the teeth of people describing Fianna Fáil and particularly Fianna Gael as right-wing semi-fascist parties. I mean, any party or any government that presides over this sort of increase in public expenditure is certainly not a right-wing government. I mean, it's a massive fiscal stimulus through expenditure measures. And I, I think, uh, well, at least my understanding of the ideological difference between the left and the right is primarily related to the level of government involvement in the economy. And obviously, the more government involvement there is through taxation and expenditure, 
uh, the more left wing that government system would tend to be. And um, alternatively, the less government intervention, the lower level of taxation, the lower level of spending would characterise a right wing government. Uh, but there is nothing in what this government is doing that would remotely smack of right wing economics or politics, in my view. Uh, but of course, the opposition still not happy. Um, you know, Sinn Féin particularly out immediately arguing there was not enough money being spent, that the money should be spent immediately. And I, I just posed the question. Um, you know, I did pose it to Sinn Féin during the week in a media appearance. Um, is there anything that would make you happy in terms of package that the government could actually deliver? Um, and before I hand back to you for a comment on this, Chris, um, I, I would also like to say that public expenditure um, is it's sticky in an upward direction. In other words, it ratchets, it ratchets up. So when government commits to public expenditure, that sort of becomes permanently embedded in the public expenditure system because it is really difficult politically to roll back on spending. So all these temporary spending measures to address various problems will become permanently embedded in the expenditure side of the government's balance sheet. And if, if you accept that as a truth, um, and if you look at the pressures that will come on public expenditure over the next few years, uh, we have a very high level of government debt, 236.6 billion at the moment. That's over 47,200 euro per man, woman and child in the country. A lot of money. Debt servicing costs are rising, notwithstanding the great job the National Treasury Management Agency has done in terms of funding. But inevitably, as debt is rolled over, um, the cost of rolling it over will become more expensive. So debt servicing expenditure will rise. Um, we have the aging population. OK, we're younger than most other EU countries at the moment. But nevertheless, we are going to see a rapid aging of the population over the coming years. And that has huge implications for spending on health, care for older people and on pensions. We also have the very expensive climate change mitigation measures because I have no doubt that if government is to achieve its 51% reduction in carbon emissions by 2030, um, it is going to have to spend a lot of money in incentives to change people's behaviour because the stick approach will not work here. I think financial incentives, particularly in the transport arena, will be required. It'll be very expensive. We have the government's, well, I think it's a commitment. It's hard to know from day to day, but there is some sort of government commitment to delivering a, a major reform of the delivery of healthcare. Um, and, and that process is called slauncher care that's going to be very expensive. And there is then this ongoing um, expenditure associated with the digital transition um, of the whole public sector. So what I'm saying, Chris, is the government is spending vast amount of money at the moment. It's going to spend a lot more money next year. Uh, over the coming years, there will be massive pressure on public spending. And yet it is described as a right wing government. And yet um, it, it's 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 a package of measures that the opposition are still not happy about. I throw my hands in the air in despair. Yeah, I think like me, um, political parties in Ireland defy conventional categorization. I know that historically, is people have said that Fianna Fáil is centre left mildly and Fine Gael is centre right mildly. 
If you speak to some younger people in Ireland, they use that word, neo-fascist, about Fine Gael in particular, which I have no idea where it comes from. The, the success of Sinn Féin painting Fine Gael in particular as this ultra-right-wing party um, defies belief. But um, my hat is taken off to Sinn Féin for painting their political opponents very successfully via this PR campaign that they've waged incessantly to paint Fine Gael in particular in, in this way. What they've actually done and said over many, many years is not consistent with that at all. Uh, so, yeah, let's not get too hung up on labels. You can see the outlines from what you're saying, Jim, that of the next fiscal crisis of the Irish state. Uh, one of two things may happen, both may happen together, God forbid, which is that uh, there's a recession caused externally, usually. Um, in, in Ireland's case, I think the next recession, if and when it comes, will be an external event. It could well be, for example, that one has already started in the United States after a fashion in that GDP may have shrunk during the first half of the year, just ended. We, we know that it shrank in the first quarter. It may well have done it again in the second quarter. We'll find out very, very soon. And a lot of people are forecasting hard landing, stagflation and all the rest of it, those things that we have spoken about. A recession would be a disaster for Ireland and in particular for its fiscal situation. The other thing, of course, is that old chestnut of corporation tax revenues. We've been bombarded with all sorts of people telling us that, you know, most of the revenues come from only 10 companies and a change in the rules and or a change in the behaviour of those companies would be a fiscal disaster. What it's like, Jim, it's the way in which Norway and Britain responded differently to the discovery of North Sea oil. It was a windfall gain from which the state, in particular, gained an awful lot of tax revenues. Of course, there was economic activity associated with oil production, jobs and all the rest of it. And just the multinationals' presence in Ireland is a bit like that. It's like a resource discovery that provides jobs and, in particular, huge amounts of revenue for the exchequer. Norway and the UK did it differently then. Norway salted most of those oil revenues into a sovereign wealth fund. In other words, they saved them in a rainy day fund, which is now one of the biggest funds of its kind in the world. You'll see on the share register of every single listed company in the world, Norway's people listed up there as one of the biggest shareholders. The UK, by stark contrast, spent the money and there's nothing to show for it uh, in, in, in reality. Um, so two very, very different responses. And Ireland, with its corporation tax revenues, has done the UK thing. It's simply spent them. And they should have, uh, a significant chunk of them should have been saved. Better late than never. There are some suggestions being made at the moment from IFAC, for example, I think uh, is one. There, But there are others that the money that they're, dra they're drowning in cash. Pascal Donoghue is drowning in tra tax revenues at the moment. And that thing that you mentioned about the money allocated for Ukraine and a little bit of COVID strikes me as a, a sort of a half-hearted attempt to park some cash in a pot that has uh, Ukraine and COVID on, on, on the label. But it really, it, it's a cack-handed way of put, putting money to one side that it may not actually be spent. If it is spent on, on Ukrainian refugees and the like, I think Ireland will be one of the countries as a proportion of GDP that are doing most for Ukraine, which is, which is laudable, I guess, um, but is an extraordinary state of affairs. You're not sending them munitions, but you certainly are helping them in, in, in different ways if this money is spent on anything like the scale that you are suggesting. So I have my deep and dark suspicions about 
what this money ultimately will be um, used for. But if you are to avoid a fiscal crisis at some point in the next few years, the money that Pascal Donoghue is drowning at the moment should be putting to one side. And that's a particular point that could be made in a more general way. Because the success of Sinn Féin in the opinion polls and the PR campaign they've waged against the incumbent governments, the, the upcoming vote of no confidence that's being talked about, and all of that, means that the government is running scared. And it's doing exactly the opposite of what it should be doing. Um, in the face of an energy shock, economists are united on what you should do. Um, in the face of the inflation shock that we've suffered, e economic advice is consistent and it's the same. And mostly, uh, to, to shorten a very long debate, um, it's, you've got to take it on the chin. Yes, you must help the poorest in your society, but these widespread general supports, cost of living budgets, it's all economic nonsense. It really, really is. And um, it stores up trouble for the future. It, de it, it delays the pain, actually. And, but one of the things that it does uh, as well, as you rightly say, is that it entrenches public spending I and mean, we're like children, citizens of countries like Ireland and Britain, in that once we're given something, a new toy, we don't want to give it back. And when we're given public spending, we know, it, the hardest thing in the world to do is cut public spending. And the only time we ever actually do it is when a crisis forces us to, or in Ireland's case, when the IMF and um, the famous Troika, um, the ECB, the EU and the IMF force us to do it. We're never able to, to be fiscally continent ourselves. So yeah, it's, it's a real problem. And a brave politician now would actually say the right thing to do, Ireland, is to confront the very hard policy choices that we face, to understand that this cost of living shock that we're faced with, you can't do very much about because it's coming from outside Ireland. And we can cushion it for the poorer people in our society, for the most vulnerable to an extent. But, to, but it's a very limited extent. And to the, we might have some spare cash at the moment, but boy, are we likely to need it in the future rather than now? And rather than just splurging the economy with more cash, what we're going to do is save it. Uh, stock market, I would urge them to actually just do what Norway has done and buy a lot of global equities, invest it in global stock markets, because they're down a lot this year. And this is a glorious opportunity right now to start buying up some cheaper equities. They might get a lot cheaper. I think they probably will. But this is an opportunity to pick up cheap assets that would yield an income and capital gains in the years and decades to come. That's the sensible thing to do. All of this rub populist rubbish that Sinn Féin is spouting will lead us down a fiscal black hole. And it's too risky. That's what a mature, sensible politician would do. They, of course, reply... Yeah, it's the old Jean-Claude Juncker uh, reply, which is we know what the right thing to do is, but we don't know how to get elected. If we do it, sometimes you've got to be brave. Sometimes you've actually got to call out bullshit as being bullshit. And Sinn Féin's policies in this regard are, and the way in which they've got this government running scared is pure economic bullshit. And I just wonder, where are the brave politicians willing to tell the Irish people about the hard choices that we actually do face? So... I'll shut up there, Jim. It's certainly taken up far too much yeah, time. They, they don't exist, Chris. Uh, I'd just like to make a few observations before we wrap. Um, corporation tax in the first six months of the year accounted for 23.8% of the total. 
Um, and for the last decade, this has averaged sort of 15, 16%. So it has suddenly shot up. So therein lies a vulnerability. Uh, the IDA a couple of days ago published its mid-year um, results and it has approved 155 new investments um, in Ireland this year. And if those investments come to pass, it'll create an extra 18,000 jobs. So the foreign direct investment part of the Irish economic model still working very well. Um, and that may negate some of the negativity we have about the dangers of the dependence on corporation tax. And finally, I, I guess a straw in the wind, um, US weekly unemployment claims um, this week hit a six month high of 235,000. And we're starting to see a number of large companies like Coinbase, Netflix, Tesla announce significant job layoffs. So perhaps we're starting to see the first real signs of a turn in the US economy and the US labour market. But having said that, there's still a lot of pressure within the Federal Reserve to deliver um, an increase of three quarters of one percent in um, interest rates for the second month in a row. So um, lots of stuff going on. Chris, it was great to talk again and I look forward to our next chat. Thanks, Jim. As always, speak to you next week. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.